Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Lewis Williams. And I'm Kyle Nostrom. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast that showcases the work, insights and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. This podcast is generously supported by the American Philosophical Association, the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford, and Linnica College, Oxford. Today we're going to be joined by Nicholas Drake, a PhD student at the Australian National University. We'll be talking about Nicholas's previous self-sufficient life in the forest, his thoughts on the aim of philosophy, and his research on government measures of national well-being. If you'd like to get in touch with Nicholas, you can email him at nicholas.drake at anu.edu.au, and you can read more about his research on his website, www.nicholasdrake.org. Nicholas Drake, welcome to the Philosopher's Nest. Uh, Thank you very much. Nice to be here. So where were you in your life when you decided to pursue a PhD in philosophy? At the time, I was living in New Zealand, which is where I'm from, in an area in the far north of the North Island, uh, far north of the country, called Hokianga, sort of like slightly remote rural area. I was living in, in a small hut in the forest, yes, in a in a valley in Hokianga there. So, I mean, I didn't think about pursuing a PhD while I was in a hut in the forest. So maybe you can tell us what it was about being in the forest that sort of inspired that. And I guess, you know, it makes me think of like Henry David Thoreau's classic, you know, walk into the woods and what one gets from living in the woods. So yeah, tell us a bit more about that. All right. That's a nice mention, actually, because I read Walden very early on and like a long, long time ago. And I really loved it, actually. I don't think it exactly inspired me to do philosophy. So the situation there was, yes, I was spending a lot of my time was like there was growing food in a, in a clearing outside my hut and getting firewood, which I ordered by, you know, by hand, chopping, you know, chopping trees and sawing them up by hand. I quite enjoyed the manual labor, but I did have an intellectual side, which was unsatisfied. And I found that there were wonderful people around, but there weren't really uh, many people I could talk to about the kinds of things that I was uh, thinking about. And so I had a long-standing interest in philosophy, and I was, I'd been reading philosophy for, for quite a long time and found that I had pretty much learned as much as I could on my own. So those were two factors. There was like a bit of a, I was sort of intellectually unsatisfied. I learned as much philosophy as I really could by myself. And I always tried to be, um, well, I've for quite a long time tried to be of some use in the world in various ways, mostly quite practical things. And I uh, felt at that point that I could probably be most useful by pursuing intellectual avenues. I, so I, th- I thought that getting a, a PhD in philosophy would be the thing to do. So I went and enrolled in a BA because I hadn't been to university and I've been at university since then. So I guess studying philosophy in you know, an academic institution probably isn't the first thing that many people would think of when they decide that they want to try and make a positive impact in the world. So from your perspective and your experience and in what you're trying to do now, how is it that philosophy can be useful? What is it that philosophy can do? Let's see. So I, th- I don't know that philosophy in general can be of uh, much use, but I don't think that particularly matters necessarily. You know, I think that I, I like to do philosophy that has a, a practical bent, but there's philosophy that, that doesn't, and I think that's fine. People enjoy doing it, so that's that's great. My 
own work is to do with how governments measure and promote well-being. So it has fairly a fairly strong practical aspect. You know, I work on like actually how governments should go about doing that. Yeah, I mean, before we get to your work, which we're really excited to talk about, I know that there's a kind of project that you're tinkering with to sort of think about the aim of philosophy or the purpose of philosophy. And I mean, as Lewis was alluding to, you know, some people don't think of it necessarily as the most practical thing one can do, but maybe that's because that's not the thing that matters for philosophers. So, I mean, a lot of philosophers think that what matters is pursuing the truth or something like that. So they claim they want to carve reality at its joints or something like that, some kind of abstract phrase that sort of encapsulates that. But I take it you're not convinced by that view of philosophy, maybe? No, that's right. So Well, I have a short paper that I've written, and this is entirely a a side project that came about because uh, Daniel Stolger at ANU ran a short graduate course on metaphilosophy, which I sat in on because that was a a great opportunity. And so there, there was some, uh, yes, I sort of like encountered this idea that the aim of philosophy is truth, which I'd come across before, but, but thinking about it seriously, it seemed to me that it can't be the case. So this isn't to say that it isn't the case that an uh, aim of philosophy is truth, but to say if there is a one aim of philosophy or if there is a predominant or fundamental aim of philosophy, then it isn't truth. So what, in your view, is the aim of philosophy then, if not simply the pursuit of truth? I have no idea, but I would, I would say uh, further, I, I don't know what it means to say philosophy has an aim. I don't know really what that means. And I, I sort of think it must have some relationship probably to, because it seems to be like, it's. A, I mean, I take it as that it's a normative claim. People making the claim specifically tend to present it as a normative claim. So is that the proper aim of philosophy is truth or that the aim, philosophy should be aiming at the truth. But philosophy is a very amorphous thing. You could like say it's an institution and institutions have aims, but as far as institutions go, it's pretty sort of like unclear what it is. And I mean, in the sense that it's, it's something with a name, but I assume that if philosophy has a fundamental, a single fundamental aim, that must have some relation to what philosophers then should be doing. And then it becomes, it becomes very unclear to me how that works. I mean, we clearly don't in practice just pursue truth. Well, this isn't a philosophical topic, but let's say I have a mole on my left shoulder. That's true. But my sharing that with the world doesn't, nobody cares. It's at least something like interesting truth or useful truth that people are, that we, we care about for one thing. But then we do lots of other things as well. So some philosophers aim at wisdom, which is a, a very old traditional kind of like aim of philosophy. Some aim at uh, learning how to live well. Some aim at being of some use in the world. A lot of philosophers also uh, do philosophy with the aim of making a living, uh, which seems reasonable. And it isn't clear when you've got all these different aims that you should focus on the truth more than others. So let's say if the aim of the proper aim of philosophy is truth, and I've got a choice between two projects, and one of them, well, this is the project that's going to produce the most truth. And here's another project, which is going to be very useful and save a lot of lives and be interesting. And it isn't clear that I should favor the first one. I mean, my guess would be that there's, there are, I mean, philosophers, I don't, so if we leave philosophy aside, philosophers have a number of legitimate aims, 
pursuing the truth isn't paramount for most people. Most people would, if they've got, they wouldn't write one paper that's going to have more truth over another one, which is still, you know, they think it's true, but it can get published and give them tenure. And that doesn't seem entirely unreasonable. Likewise, you know, other aims like making the world a better place or, or being wise and, and all these other things. So it seems like f- philosophers have a lot of legitimate aims, and I'm not sure that there is one that should be fundamental. I'm also yeah, not quite sure what, the, what it means, what the relationship would be between philosophy having an aim and what all of philosophers should be doing. Yeah, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the thought that maybe this plurality of potential aims that you've gestured towards, that they simply could be a plurality of aims of philosophy, that philosophy has many aims and each one of these uh, are one of those many aims. In any case, regardless of which one we identify or whether we're sympathetic to this pluralistic view, it's clear that your own research project seeks to make some kind of positive contribution to the world. Perhaps it also contributes to this other aim of philosophy which is living well that you spoke about. But before, again, we come on to your research project, I'm curious as to whether two of these aims that you alluded to, the aim of living well, but also the aim of cultivating wisdom, might have been something that you were seeking in the experiences that you told us about living in the forest. So, you know, so Kyle mentioned Thoreau's uh, Walden, and I think the thought there was Thoreau was seeking this process of discovery uh, in living deliberately, trying to find this this better way of living well, you know, quite a philosophical project. Was that something you had in mind when you, when you chose to, to live in, in the heart in the forest or was it maybe just something more practical? It perhaps was in a sense. I mean, my, my primary concern there, so the reasons I moved there, so that time I was, when I moved there, I was living in a city in New Zealand and I was running a house for homeless people that I'd started. Yes, because it occurred to me that that was something that I could, that I could do. Um, that would be of some use. And over the years that I was doing that, I was concerned with environmental matters more and more. And especially I was thinking about the effects we were having on the environment and um, what that would mean for future generations and future animal species as well, actually, that always like it breaks my heart a bit when... Um... So in New Zealand, seagulls are starving to death for example, just a very, very common um, bird that's all over the place and their numbers are declining. So anyway, environmental matters were on my mind more and more. So the primary reason that I that I um, moved into the forest was to, well, I guess I have a very practical bent when it comes to learning. And so I wanted to learn um, how, how to live simply, how that worked, whether it was a good idea. Yeah. And that seemed like the best way to do it. Yes. <laughs> and did it work? Well, I certainly learned a lot. I mean, I think there are a lot of things that, yeah, I guess that there are a lot of details about how things work that might not be obvious from the outside. So, for example, the amount of wood that it takes to live without electricity is really, really large. So... You know, the idea that, say, everybody could live that simply the way that I was, um, where you're just cooking on, a, cooking on a wood stove, you know, you would need massive forests and some kind of, you, you'd need some highly developed system for replanting to keep up with that. 
So there are quite a few things like that. I don't think that you necessarily need to necessarily go live in the forest to find these things out, but that's the way that is <laughs> the way that I did things. Yeah. I should also say that I'd always been very attracted to living simply. I like I like to live simply and I like wild places and nature. So, you know, there was just a, a strong lifestyle element to it as well. I mean, it sounds like a really interesting lifestyle and sort of pivoting to uh, your main research. Right now, you're not living the simple life, I, I suppose. You're at the Australian National University pursuing your, your PhD, I believe, on the topic of government measures of national well-being, which is a really interesting question because, I mean, there's a lot of philosophers who, when we're talking about the aims of philosophy living well, a lot of philosophers are very much concerned with what the nature of well-being is. And, you know, there's a very famous appendix in Derek Parfit's book about theories of well-being. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, those theories and what a well-being framework is. Sure. Okay. So, what is often referred to as a well-being framework is a a government measure of of national well-being and these have become increasingly popular in in recent years countries that are currently uh, using these include Bhutan, Canada, New Zealand, Australia is just bringing one in, Scotland, Norway, Wales, there are a few others and these uh, well-being frameworks, their aim is to move away from measures such as GDP as the primary measure of economic and social development and economic and social progress and measure well-being more directly. A little way before my, I started my PhD, I found out that New Zealand had developed and implemented one of these, the New Zealand Treasury specifically, which is the kind of institution that normally um, designs and runs these things. And it had done this in a fairly uh, big way. So the Treasury is the agency primarily responsible for advising the government on policy and evaluating policies. So the idea is was that the New Zealand Treasury will be using this wellbeing framework as the main means of evaluating policies and giving advice to the government. And the government started calling its, its annual national budget the well-being budget. And this raised a few questions in my mind, especially given that philosophers of well-being disagree very strongly about what well-being is. So I wondered, what does the Treasury think it is? And how did they decide that? And are they right? Yes, yeah, so I started looking into that and found that a very fascinating area. So I'm curious then whether those state measures of well-being do indeed track philosophical conceptions of well-being, or are they constructed somewhat differently to the way that philosophers conceive of well-being? Uh, yes, yeah, so they, they work very differently. So philosophers of well-being work on finding an account of well-being, an account of the ultimate constituents of a good life or of life going well for somebody. and. The way that these well-being frameworks work is, in almost every case, they don't employ any account of well-being. But what they have is they have a list of a list of different things, and these things are meant to be connected to well-being in some way. The well-being framework works to measure those things. What a well-being framework consists of is, and they mostly have this, they generally have this structure, they have a list of what are called 
uh, domains of well-being. Domains is the term. And these will be a number of things that are thought to be important for well-being. And there are some fairly uncontroversial ones, like health will be there, education will be there, income will be there, sometimes some things like um, relationships or social cohesion. And you can have some less obvious things on there, like cultural identity, yeah, quite a variety of, of things. And then for each one of these domains, they have a number of indicators. And the indicators are the specific measures. So under the domain of health, one of the indicators might be life expectancy. And there'll be a specific data source used for that indicator. The problem I see with this is that, especially the problem I see with not having an account of well-being, is that there's no publicly available rationale and sometimes no privately available rationale for what gets included on the list of domains and what gets excluded. So if you attend to one of these things, if you look at the New Zealand Treasury and everything it says about its well-being framework, there isn't a rationale there that's given for why they include some things and not others. There are little bits and pieces you can put together a little bit to some extent, but, but really that you won't come up with a, a coherent rationale. And that's problematic, I think, for a number of reasons. One is that these frameworks are meant to be directing policy. And so this means that some things are being promoted as good for the population, other things being demoted as bad for the population, and it isn't clear why. There isn't a reason there why some things are included and others aren't. It is also isn't transparent to the population why some things are being promoted and some aren't. So the, the reasons for policy aren't transparent. And then it doesn't really seem like there's public consent for these things, which violates some like commonly accepted principles in a, in a liberal democracy, um, that if the government is promoting something as good for people, it should be with their, only with their consent. So another issue there is that if there isn't an explicit account of well-being used, there will be an implicit one because the government will be saying these people have got more well-being than these people. This, these people's well-being has gone up. Here it's gone down. Overall, it's getting better. Here it's going getting worse. And by well-being, they mean the set of indicators and domains that they have. So they at least have an implicit view that well-being consists of having these things. but there isn't really a justification available for these, for why they've chosen to use this implicit account of well-being. So I argue that these well-being frameworks do need to use an account of well-being. They need to have a, a clear publicly available rationale for what they include and exclude. And the main focus of my dissertation is, is finding that account. Well, that's a really good statement of your dissertation. And thanks for giving that to us. I definitely want to probe the points you were making about the lack of a theory here or kind of an implicit theory, because, you know, my mind when you were talking about domains and, and listing things is to think, well, the theory of well-being they're operating with is some kind of objective list theory, right? Which says like there are certain things that are good for us, regardless of whether or not we want them subjectively. So, you know, the government has made some assessment about that. It's the same sort of controversy that arises when philosophers say, oh, these are the ends that we ought to pursue. This is what makes life go well. And I take it your aversion here, or at least the sort of things you're trying to raise are concerns for, it seems like an, an implicitly applied objective list theory 
uh, that basically shapes everyone's life, at least in a lot of countries. Would you say like that's like the nature of your concern? Not exactly. So it's actually a bit, I think probably the situation is a bit worse than that, in that it isn't clear that it's an objectiveless theory. It isn't clear what it is, because... It would be an objectiveless theory if these were things that the government was taking to be important for people, independently of anyone's attitudes. So one simple way to describe objectivism about well-being is that it's the view that your well-being doesn't always depend on your attitudes. Uh, and we can say subjectivism is the view that your well-being does always, in part, depend on your attitudes. And it might be an objective list theory if that was the reason for these things being included. But these things could be included because the government thinks they give people the most pleasure. These are the things that bring people pleasure, in which case we would have a, a hedonistic account of well-being. Or it could be that these are the things that people value, in which case it would be a subjectivist view of well-being. But there isn't even that much clarity as to why these things are included and other things aren't. So what would a legitimate governmental well-being framework look like? Would it be a bit simplistic to suggest that the government simply releases a PhD thesis that defends the conception of well-being that they're using? How is it that the, the government should go about attaining the public consent and making their framework available to the public? Right. So the approach that I take is uh, goes like this. So I think governments need to be using an account of well-being in these well-being frameworks. But we can't simply use the right account of well-being because we don't know what that is. There's like many philosophers who will say that they know what the right account of well-being is, but collectively we don't because most other philosophers will disagree with that, with that person. So th there isn't another way of putting that is there isn't a, an expert consensus to which governments and government agencies can turn. So... The approach that I take is one of uh, a kind of conceptual engineering. So what I argue is that we need to leave aside the question of what is the correct account of well-being simpliciter, that is the thing that our philosophers of well-being are interested in, which is the ultimate constituents of well-being for all people, and maybe even just all beings or all welfare subjects. And what we need to do instead is to work out what is the best account of well-being to use in this particular context. So what is the best account of well-being to use in national well-being measurement? So the thought then, I guess, is that that would be a, a pragmatic approach to constructing a, a governmental framework of well-being rather than one that is, um, you know, aiming at the truth, as it were. Yes, that's right. The way that I proceed is by working out what the conditions are for an account of well-being for uh, national well-being measurement, or I just say public policy for, for brevity. So I work out what the conditions are for an account of well-being for public policy, and then find the account that best fulfills those conditions. So do you think that I mean, this conceptual engineering project that you're involved in with respect to well-being, could that have some ramifications for you know the philosophers who are more interested in the abstract questions about well-being. Do you think there's a kind of element of it influencing not just policymaking, but then the way that philosophers have traditionally thought about well-being? Yes, I'm not sure there are implications there for philosophy of well-being, though there could be. So, but one thing I found is that there's definitely room for philosophers of well-being to be, if they want to, looking at 
practical contexts like public policy. So there's an awful lot of being done on well-being in the world. There's governments measuring it and trying to promote it. There's um, psychologists working with it, economists, all sorts of social scientists, people in health and psychiatry. And they're largely doing it without any philosophical equipment. And philosophers could be of enormous use there. So the, there are some areas where I think the the focus on practical context and the practical application of uh, philosophical accounts and philosophical concepts can have implications for philosophy. So one area that I touch on in a paper is is disability, where I think that if we look closely at the context of public policy, we can learn some important things about accounts of disability. So the dominant account of disability uh, at the moment and for a little while has been the social model. The social model says that disability is the result of the interaction between people with impairments and social prejudices that cause barriers to disabled people's equal participation in society. So that's the social model. And the social models recently come up against some very strong objections, very good objections. And so in one chapter of my dissertation, I defend the social model against those objections, but the more substantial part of it is that I give an argument for the social model. And I argue that the social model of disability is the only, is the only account of disability that works well in a public policy context. Mm-hmm. To be very brief, its main rival, I think its main rival is Elizabeth Barnes's account, which I think is very, very good and very, very clever. But I think under that account, uh, disability, the category of disability is too unstable. So who counts as, as disabled can fluctuate quite dramatically. And also the account doesn't guide policy in any way. And to further the interests and rights of disabled people, we actually have to use public policy to do that in, in many cases. It takes changes in infrastructure and, and laws that can only be done through public policy. And so I think they're looking at the practical context shows that the social model has more going for it than we would initially think. And I actually argue it then comes out on top of its, its rivals when we take that into account. Yeah, very interesting. It's I, I like thinking about the relationship between philosophy and public policy in this kind of a two-way approach. And all of this, I guess, is testament to the, some of those aims of philosophy that you gestured towards earlier, those candidate aims such as to live well um, and also to make a positive difference in the world, which it, it seems like your dissertation is on track to be doing. So, Nicholas, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com.